Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Now, during the flower people period, who was your drummer? Stumpy's replacement, Peter James Bond. He also died in mysterious circumstances. He exploded on stage. Just like that. It just went up. It just was like a flash of green light, and that was it. Nothing was left. It was, well, there was. It's that, true. This, uh, this truly really did happen. There was a little green globule on his drum seat. Like a stain, really. It was, it was a small stain in a globule, yeah. actually. And you know, it was, several, you know, dozens of people spontaneously combust each year. It's just not really widely reported. Right. Listening to episode 149 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about spontaneous human combustion. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Every year, some people have the misfortune to die in fires. It's always a tragedy, but sometimes the tragedy is inexplicable. There are rare reports of people bursting into flames for no apparent reason. Most of their bodies are reduced to ashes, but other parts are mysteriously undamaged, and there's little or no fire damage in the rooms around them. This phenomenon is known as spontaneous human combustion. So what should we make of these reports? Is this a real phenomenon, and what could possibly cause it? So that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what do we need to begin by saying? The opening clip we heard was from the mockumentary This is Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap is a real rock group that has played real concerts in front of real audiences, but it also has a fictional history, which is chronicled in the mockumentary. In the fictional history, Spinal Tap has not one, but two drummers who spontaneously combust. So that's where that clip came from. Second, because spontaneous human combustion deals with what happens when a person's body catches fire, we will need to discuss a few aspects of this in today's episode. As always, we'll keep it clinical, but listeners should know that a few of the things we'll mention may be a bit squeamish. Now, Spinal Tap's drummers and what happened to them are fictional, so let's hear about an actual case of spontaneous human combustion. It's probably the most famous case of all, and here's how it's described on the website anomalyinfo.com. The last time 67-year-old widow Mrs. Mary Reeser was seen alive was on July 1st, 1951. Her son, Dr. Richard Reeser, and her landlady, Mrs. Pansy M. Carpenter, both said goodnight at about 9 p.m. and left Mrs. Reeser sitting in her easy chair in her apartment in St. Petersburg, Florida. The first sign of trouble was at 5 a.m. Mrs. Carpenter was awakened by the smell of smoke, and assuming it was a water pump in the garage that had been overheating, she turned the pump off and went back to sleep. At 8 a.m., Mrs. Carpenter was awakened by a telegraph boy at her door. 
he had a telegraph for Mrs. Reeser. Carpenter signed for the missive and walked to Mrs. Reeser's room, but there was no answer to her knock. Carpenter checked the doorknob. It was hot. Alarmed, Carpenter ran outside to find some help. A pair of house painters working nearby rushed over to her aid, and together they managed to force open the door to Mrs. Reese's apartment, only to be met by a terrible blast of heat, evidence of a fire within. What was discovered inside the room defied belief. The only portion of the apartment that was burned was the small corner in which sat the remains of Mary Reeser's easy chair, and of Mary Reeser herself. Of the chair, only charred coil springs remained. Of Mrs. Reeser, there was little more, and these remains baffled the firemen, police, and pathologists that examined them. Mrs. Reeser's 170 pounds had been reduced to less than 10 pounds of charred material. Only her left foot remained intact, still wearing a slipper, burnt off at the ankle but otherwise undamaged. Also found were her liver, now fused to a lump of vertebrae, and stranger still, her skull, strangely shrunk to the size of a teacup. The remainder of the apartment showed all the signs of heat damage. From about the four-foot level on up, the walls were covered with soot. A mirror had cracked, plastic switches and a plastic tumbler in the bathroom had melted, as had two candles on a dresser which left behind their unburned wicks and a pink pool of wax. Below the four-foot level, the only damage was the small circular burn area encompassing the remains of Mrs. Reeser and her chair, and a plastic electric wall outlet that had melted, stopping her clock at 4.20 a.m. What could have burned Mrs. Reeser so fiercely without causing more damage to her surroundings? Experts pointed out that a temperature of 2,500 degrees is necessary for such a thorough cremation, and that cigarette igniting her clothing would never have produced that temperature. The electrical outlet had melted only after the fire had begun, so it couldn't be the source. An FBI pathologist tested a carpet sample for gasoline and other accelerants. There were none. Even lightning had been considered, but there had been none in St. Petersburg that night. Months after the occurrence, the chief of police and the chief of detectives signed a statement attributing the fiery death of Mary Reeser to falling asleep with a cigarette in her hand. Although already shown to be an impossibility, the declaration served to publicly close the investigation. So, lots of strange things here. Mrs. Reeser caught fire for no apparent reason. She was sitting in a chair. Her body had been reduced almost completely to ashes. Her skull had been strangely shrunken. And the fire was confined exclusively to the chair with the rest of the room showing heat damage. How common are those kinds of effects in cases of spontaneous human combustion? Quite common. Often, much of the body is completely reduced to ashes, even the bones, yet other things like parts of the legs survive. There's often no fire damage except in the immediate vicinity of the body, and most significantly, there's no apparent source for the combustion in the room. It looks like the victim burned up from the inside. How far back do we have reports of spontaneous human combustion? The earliest report that I'm aware of appears to date to the time of the First Crusade between 1096 and 1099. It describes people in a location called Nevers or Ninaruam, and it says that they were burning from 
the in, from an inside fire within their bodies. Unfortunately, very little is known about this case, and so we can't assess how reliable it is. It's also unusual in that the people who were reported to catch fire would cut off a hand or a foot when the fire started to keep it from spreading. And that's different than the modern cases where the fire seems to start in the torso and it is the hands and feet that actually survive instead of the other way around. The fire doesn't start in people's feet or hands and then move to the torso. The next account I'm aware of comes from the late 1400s when a Polish knight drank two glasses of brandy and then flames erupted from his mouth and he died. However, accounts don't really start picking up until the 1600s. They grow in the 1700s and grow even more in the 1800s and 1900s, the ones I'm aware of seem to peter out after the 1980s, but some have occurred since, and the most recent case I'm aware of is from 2017. Why have accounts of this increased in number over the centuries? It's probably largely due to the way information gets passed down. In the old days, they didn't keep nearly as many records as we do. So there were likely a lot of cases that were never written down. And, you know, they didn't have newspapers necessarily. So maybe there were stories being passed around orally, but they weren't preserved in newspaper archives. And because records get lost and destroyed over time, many older records that used to exist are no longer available to researchers. Most probably, there were a large number of cases in the past that we just don't know about, making it look like the number of cases has been increasing. However, there may be factors that affect the number of cases that do occur in different periods. Uh, So the number of cases may go up and down somewhat depending on what's happening in society and what you think is responsible for human combustion. And when did people start studying this phenomenon? In 1745. In his book, Spontaneous Human Combustion, A Brief History, Garth Haslam writes, Though the idea had probably been bouncing around for a while, the basic concept and arguments for humans just bursting into flames was not presented as a formal topic to learned men until 1745. In that year, an article was published in the Philosophical Transactions of London, England, written by Mr. Paul Rowley, which presented three unusual deaths by fire those of the Countess de Bandi Cezanante in 1731, Grace Pett in 1744, and John Hitchell in 1613. In his article, Rowley noted the similarities of the three cases, which, roughly speaking, was that all three died of fires from unknown and unexplained origins. Then he laid out his arguments for the possibility of internal combustion of the human body as the cause of all three deaths. The arguments he put forward were to last for nearly 200 years, becoming the classic criteria for proving an abnormal internal source for the strange fire deaths. Rowley's criteria, as he saw it in the cases he presented, were 1. That a flame from any candle, lamp, or cooking fire could not possibly consume a human body to the great extent that is seen in these cases, especially the reduction of the bones to ashes. 2 that under normal circumstances other objects in the area of the bodies should have also caught fire, but the flames seem to have unnaturally confined themselves to just their human victims. 3. That most commonly in these cases the torsos are destroyed, but outer limbs are not. This is just opposite to damage caused by normal fire deaths in which limbs are typically destroyed before the torso is. 4. The common presence of unburned limbs is likely due to a fire that starts within the torso area of the body, 
and that runs out of fuel before reaching to the tips of the extremities. 5. These fires must occur and spread extremely fast, for victims of it never appear to have resisted it, so death and burning must have been near instantaneous. In short, these must have been violent and spontaneous combustions. And these would be the key characteristics that came to be associated with the phenomenon going forward. So how will we proceed to investigate this mystery? Since most of the reported cases are very similar, I don't want to tell you a whole set of disturbing stories that are substantially the same. Instead, the real meat of the mystery is what might possibly explain these cases. So we'll turn to the possible explanations and start evaluating them. All right. So before we get to our theories, let's take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including James S., Pierre M., Carolyn S., Father Brian H., and Stephanie L. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. Now is a great time to become a StarQuest patron. Thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give. The first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor to support all our shows, including this one, making your gift go even further. And we're more than halfway to our goal of $2,000 in monthly new pledges. So won't you help us close the gap? If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now's the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about spontaneous human combustion? There are three basic kinds of theories. One is that they are of supernatural origin. Another is that they are of natural but paranormal origin. And a third is that they are of natural and normal origin. Okay. So then what can we say about spontaneous human combustion from the faith perspective? Why would God allow this? This is a subcase of the problem of evil. Why God would allow cases like the ones we've talked about is essentially analogous to why God would allow fires to harm people in other circumstances. The problem of evil goes beyond what we can talk about today, though I've added it to the big list of topics for the future. The basic answer is that God would not allow an evil unless he had a way to bring an equal or greater good out of it. And God can and will compensate those who have innocently suffered from any cause, you know, regardless of what it might be. And the compensation that God will give them will far outweigh whatever suffering we've experienced in this life. As St. Paul says, the sufferings of this life are not worth comparing to the glory that is in store for us. But if you'd like further discussion of the problem of evil, I gave a talk on it a few years ago, and we'll have a link to where you can get a DVD of it. All right. So if spontaneous human combustion has a supernatural cause, what would that be? So far as we know, there would be two possible sources. God himself, who is an uncreated spirit, or else it could be a created spirit that's causing the phenomenon. 
Do we have any evidence that God causes spontaneous human combustion? Not as far as I know. He certainly allows these incidents, just like he allows everything that takes place in the universe. But I don't have any evidence that he directly intervenes to cause these things to happen miraculously. So I don't think this is a promising explanation. All right. And so if it's created spirits that cause this, what would be the options here? The created spirits that we're aware of fall into two categories, human and angelic. They also come in two flavors, good and bad. Based on the biblical evidence, angelic spirits would seem to have the raw power needed to cause someone to burst into flame. Human spirits might or might not have it. We don't know enough about the powers that disembodied human spirits may have. Would good spirits like angels and saints want to cause this? Not unless God wants them to. Their desire is to do God's will so they wouldn't cause someone to burst into flames without authorization from God. And as we've said, I'm not aware of any evidence of God intervening to do this. So I don't think good created spirits are a likely source for spontaneous human combustion. And what about those bad spirits? The activities of lost human souls are sharply limited. As we talked about in episode 106 on Aquinas and the Occult, Aquinas thought that God may occasionally allow a damned soul to manifest to the living, such as to serve as a lesson of what can happen if you don't repent. However, because the activities of the lost are so limited, they wouldn't be able to cause human combustion unless God authorized it. And we're back to the fact that I don't have evidence for God doing that. On the other hand, demons aren't limited in their activities the way lost souls are. At least in the present age, demons have more freedom in what they can do, so it's easier to see how they'd have the liberty to cause a problem like this. But causing physical problems isn't what demons are primarily interested in. They're more interested in getting people to sin and making them physically burn up doesn't really fit that. They might want to do it occasionally, but I don't think that we could count on them being a principal explanation for the phenomenon. And I'm not aware of any good evidence linking demons to it. For example, I'm not aware of it being statistically correlated with cases of demonic possession or infestation or even witchcraft or things like that. I've never seen those phenomenon appear in the reports of spontaneous human combustion. Still, could someone still propose that it's demons? People can propose anything they want. The question is whether you have evidence for it. But per the principle I always articulate on this show, every phenomenon should be taken at face value in terms of how it presents itself until you have evidence to the contrary. And this phenomenon presents itself as one that doesn't involve demons since it isn't associated with other demonic phenomena. All right. So then what can we say about spontaneous human combustion from the reason perspective? First, let's look at the paranormal explanations. What can we say about those? One paranormal explanation that gets proposed for just about everything is aliens, because it's, it's always, always aliens. aliens. <laughs> yeah. And people have proposed that UFOs might be somehow responsible for cases of spontaneous human combustion. But I don't see good evidence for that. You don't find UFOs regularly mentioned in the historical accounts of the phenomenon. Thus, we should interpret this phenomenon again in accordance with how it appears. And since we don't have evidence otherwise or good evidence, we shouldn't assume it's aliens. The other paranormal explanation that we should consider is psychic powers. 
Isn't there a reported psychic power of starting and or controlling fires? It's called pyrokinesis, a name that was invented by the novelist Stephen King in his novel Firestarter. However, it's been pointed out that pyrokinesis is kind of an unfortunate term and a better one would be telepyrosis. But King is a novelist, not a linguist. Pyrokinesis is a special application of remote influencing, also known as telekinesis or psychokinesis. And there are historical reports of pyrokinesis, though most of these are suspected to be hoaxes. We don't have good evidence for it in modern parapsychological studies done in laboratories. Some telekinetics are reportedly able to influence temperature, though, but only to a degree. Pun intended. In 1973, Gertrude Schmeidler asked gifted psychics, including Ingo Swan, and volunteers who were not trained psychics, to try to affect temperature. In Etzel Cardenia's textbook, Parapsychology, a Handbook for the 21st Century, it says, Schmeidler asked participants to use their telekinesis to modify the temperature at a specific point in space and measured the result with a highly sensitive kind of thermometer called a thermistor which was sealed inside a thermos container to eliminate the effect of outside room temperature. As an additional control, other thermistor units were placed elsewhere in the room. A trial was considered a hit if the temperature change recorded by the target thermistor was greater than the changes recorded by the controls. Schmeidler's telekinesis experiments demonstrated that both a gifted subject and a student volunteer could significantly raise and lower the temperatures inside sealed and heavily padded thermistors. But the effect was limited and involved relatively minor temperature fluctuations. She didn't have people causing the thermistors to melt or burst into flames. And, of course, skeptics will dispute all of this anyway. So we don't have good evidence of psychic abilities being able to cause things, much less people, to burst into flame. If that were to happen, I would suspect it would be exceptionally rare. I thus think our most promising explanations for this phenomenon would be natural. What can we say about the normal explanations then? I think we need to start by considering what it takes for fire to burn, and I would call attention to three things. First, you need a fuel source for the fire. You know, For a fire to occur, you need some substance that's flammable. Second, you need certain conditions. For example, you need an oxygen atmosphere for a conventional fire to burn, which is why seaweed forests out in the ocean don't have forest fires like forests on land do. And third, you need a source of ignition, something to start the fire. All right, then let's look at each of these. What's been proposed as a fuel source in the case of spontaneous human combustion? It's not very easy to get the human body to catch fire. For example, a modern crematorium needs to be heated to 1800 degrees Fahrenheit to create an adult body in an hour. So it's been proposed that in cases of spontaneous human combustion, there may be something special needed to get the fire burning, something added to the ordinary human body to help it burn better. And since they noticed that various people who had combusted had been drinking, a theory developed that this special substance was alcohol. The idea was that alcohol would saturate the tissues in your body and make them unusually flammable. They referred to this as your tissues becoming preternaturally combustible due to the alcohol. In 1800, Pierre-Ami Lair 
published an article in the Journal de Physique, whose title in English is On the Combustion of the Human Body Produced by the Long and Immoderate Use of Spiritus Liquors. After reviewing a number of cases of people who had been drinking and then combusted, he wrote, Such excess in regards to the use of spiritus liquors must have had a powerful action on the bodies of the persons to whom I allude. All their fluids and solids must have experienced its fatal influence. For the property of the absorbing vessels, which is so active in the human body, seems on this occasion to have acted a distinguished part. It appears that in drunkards who make an unmoderate use of spiritus liquors, the aqueous part of their drink is discharged by the urinary passage, while the alcoholic part, almost like the volatile part of aromatic substances, not being subjected to an entire decomposition, is absorbed into every part of their bodies. So his idea was that when people drink, they eliminate the part of the beverage that is made out of water by urination, but the alcohol, or much of it, remains in them and gradually saturates their whole bodies. As a result, if you drink too much for too long a period of time, you might combust under certain circumstances. How plausible is this idea? It may have seemed very plausible in 1800 when Layer wrote, but today we know much more about the body and how it works, and it doesn't work the way he proposed. When people drink alcohol, it doesn't build up in their tissues. Alcohol is a carbohydrate, and your body metabolizes it just like it does other carbohydrates. In fact, it metabolizes alcohol before other carbohydrates. It's easier to digest, which is why low-carb diets recommend sharply limiting alcohol intake because it will delay your body burning off the other carbohydrates in your diet and thus delay getting you into fat-burning mode and it'll slow down your weight loss. Long-term alcohol abuse may damage your body in various ways, but it doesn't remain alcohol and build up in your tissues. So Lair had an interesting idea, but it turned out to be wrong. What if it's not long-term use? What if someone just goes on a really big drinking binge and builds up a bunch of alcohol in their body at one time before it can all be metabolized away? Would that make it easier for their bodies to combust? Let's think about this one. In most states, if your blood alcohol content gets up to 0.08%, you'll qualify for driving under the influence. If your blood alcohol gets up to 0.2%, you're going to start feeling really bad and you may start vomiting. If your blood alcohol gets up to 0.25%, just a quarter of a percent, you may lose consciousness. And if it gets up to 0.4% or above, you may not just lose consciousness, but go into a coma. Such high levels are life-threatening and cause people to die. So people's blood alcohol content doesn't tend to end up getting much higher than 0.4%, less than half a percentage point, except in rare circumstances. You'd have to drink an enormous amount of alcohol in a very short period of time to get significantly higher than half a percent. Now, alcohol that's 100% pure with no mixture of anything else is said to be 200 proof. That means if you were able to get your blood alcohol level up to the go into a coma and check out and die level, your blood would only be one proof, more or less, depending on your alcohol tolerance. One proof doesn't sound like a lot. So how does that compare to actual alcoholic beverages? 
Vodka, depending on the type, is around 135 proof, so 135 times stronger than your blood would be. Whiskey is around 80 proof. Liqueurs are around 30 proof. Unfortified wine is around 28 proof. And beer is around 11 proof. And I'm sure the alcohol aficionados in the audience may question some of those numbers, but they're the averages that I found for different types of beverages when I looked them up on the internet. Now, you can get some of those drinks to catch fire, though usually it's just the vapors burning off in a brief flash and there's not a sustained flame. But for comparison purposes, imagine taking a gallon of water, 128 ounces of it, and adding just two-thirds of an ounce of pure alcohol to it. That's what it would take to make the water one proof after you mix it thoroughly. So there's two-thirds of an ounce of alcohol in a gallon of water. Do you think that you'd be able to light that one-proof water on fire if you held a match to it? Probably not. You would be right. Under ordinary circumstances, that's not going to happen. So whatever effect alcohol may have on human combustion as a fuel source, it's not much. And this has been confirmed by experiment. Garth Haslam writes, In the late 1800s and early 1900s, a number of experiments had been performed concerning the idea of alcohol making flesh more flammable, which it doesn't. Flesh that had been soaked for a long time in alcohol burns no appreciably better than flesh that has just been doused, and neither burns very long. In every case, the alcohol burns off first, and then the flame dies out trying to burn the flesh. Also, as Ross Pomeroy points out in a 2012 article, this false belief has persisted despite the work of noted German chemist J. von Liebig, who in 1851 pointed out that anatomical specimens preserved in 70% ethanol don't catch fire. Liebig went even further to substantiate the point. In tests that probably wouldn't pass ethics reviews today, he injected rats with ethanol over prolonged periods and tried to set them on fire. It didn't work. So it's not alcohol in the blood or tissues that's doing the work here. Then what is burning? Well, it's the human body, or most of it. The water in the body serves as an impediment to the fire, so that water needs to boil off. But fire can do that. You know, if it burns slowly, it'll boil the water and that becomes vapor and escapes, allowing it to go to work on the other stuff in the body. Similarly, our bones don't work, burn well. In fact, when they cremate people... The flesh disintegrates and the bone and bone fragments are what's left. That's actually what the cremated remains or cremains that they give you in an urn is. It's the ground up remains of the bones rather than true ashes, even though people will talk about it being ashes. So the rest of the body, our other tissues, are what really serves as fuel in the case of human combustion. Now, our muscles and organs are largely made of protein, and protein can burn, but not as well as something else. What in the human body does burn well? Fat. Fat is a type of molecule known as a lipid. Lipids include fats, oils, and waxes, and they burn, which is why people historically have used candles made out of wax and lamps powered by oil as light sources. It's also been noticed that many of the reports of spontaneous human combustion involve people who are obese, meaning they've got a lot of fat on their bodies. And it's been noticed that the parts that often survive, like the feet, 
don't have much fat on them. So body fat is likely playing a big role in cases of human combustion. But wax doesn't burn that easily. If you hold a match up to the actual wax of a candle, it may melt, but it won't catch fire, which is why we light the wick of the candle rather than the wax. And oil lamps use wicks too. True. What happens with a candle or a lamp is the fuel is melted and then drawn up into the wick where it's vaporized. And it's this vapor that actually catches fire. And certainly if you held a match up to a lump of human fat, it wouldn't catch fire. It would just melt. That suggests that there is some other special condition that needs to be present for human combustion to take place. Then let's talk about what that condition might be. I'm sure it's more than just the presence of an oxygen atmosphere. Right. Cases of spontaneous human combustion do happen in oxygen atmospheres, but the victims have more than that in common. They also have something else in common. They tend to be wearing clothing at the time. And clothing is something that catches fire a lot more easily than the human body. Why is that important? When people's clothes catch on fire, it doesn't consume their whole bodies. Typically not. They'll take off the clothing, drop to the ground and roll, splash themselves with water, or do something else to put it out. People don't like having fire in contact with their skin. But suppose for a moment that they didn't do that, and the fire in their clothing started doing actual damage to their bodies. In that case, it might come into contact with the fat the fat would then melt, and the burning clothing could absorb or wick up that melted fat, just like the wick of a candle absorbs melted wax, and the wick of an oil lamp wicks up oil. So the human body could become a kind of accidental candle or lamp? Right. The fat would melt and be absorbed by the clothing, which would serve as the wick and keep the fire going until much of the body was consumed. Such a person would be a kind of inside-out candle with the wick on the outside rather than the inside. Researchers into spontaneous human combustion have named this explanation the candle effect or the wick effect. Also, it could explain why it's just the person's body and things immediately around the body that burn, not everything in the room. Just like when you light a candle or an oil lamp, the fire stays in one place and doesn't cause everything in the room to catch fire. And it could explain why things like feet that have less fat may survive. That also could be due to the fact that many people combust while sitting in chairs. Fire travels upward, and so if their torso, where the most fat is, catches fire, the fire may not travel down to their legs, just like candles burn from the top while the bottom of the candle isn't effective. But it takes a really long time for this kind of thing to happen. Even a small candle or an oil lamp with only a little oil can burn for hours. Wouldn't it take even longer for a human body to be consumed? Well, clothing covers a lot of the body, so you've got a much bigger wick, allowing more fat to be melted and absorbed, which would speed up the process. But yes, it still would take hours. Nobody's going to sit in one place for hours while they burn to death. Why wouldn't they just get up and put the fire out? Ordinarily, they would, and they do, which is why these cases are so rare. But according to one of the common theories about spontaneous human combustion, not everybody is able to do this. It may be that the person wakes up but then is unable 
to effectively put the fire out. It's often pointed out that the victims are often elderly and have poor mobility. So even if they do wake up, they may not be able to do what's needed to stop the fire. And here's where the alcohol connection comes back. Some of them may have been too drunk. They may be in an alcohol-induced coma and are incapable of waking up and putting out the fire. In fact, they may have died from alcohol poisoning or something like it, like a heart attack or a stroke, both of which can be caused by prolonged alcoholism as well as many other causes. So one theory goes, maybe sometimes people just die or are otherwise unable to move and then they catch fire and their bodies are consumed over a period of hours by the candle or wick effect. Even if alcohol isn't the explanation for why people's bodies burn, could there be another substance and one that might allow some of the more rapid cases of combustion to take place? Biologist Brian J. Fort has proposed that there is a substance our body makes that is flammable and could be responsible for a quick and thorough burning. Furthermore, this substance is particularly made when our bodies are under stress, as could be the case in an old and chronically ill person. He writes, If the body's cells are starved, which can occur during chronic illness and even during a workout at the gym, our bodies can produce acetone, and acetone is highly flammable. A range of conditions can produce ketosis, in which acetone is formed, including alcoholism, fat-free dieting, diabetes, and even teething, so we marinated pork tissue in acetone rather than ethanol. This was used to make scale models of humans which we clothed and set alight. They burned to ash within half an hour. The remains, a pile of smoking cinders with protruding limbs, were exactly like the photographs of human victims. The legs remain, we think, because there's too little fat for much acetone to accumulate. For the first time, a feasible cause of human combustion has been experimentally demonstrated. Ford is correct that our bodies can produce acetone and that it's flammable and that it gets produced in a variety of ways. In addition to illness and stress, it's produced in dieting, though not just by low-fat dieting. Ketosis is the process by which your body metabolizes fat, so all dieting, where you're losing weight, involves ketosis, not just low-fat dieting. But normally, and by the way, it's perfectly healthy. In fact, it's healthier to do the ketosis and get the body fat off than to keep the body fat. But while the experiment he did with miniature models of humans made up of acetone-soaked pork is impressive, I'm not sure how much it helps us in solving this mystery. It may be true that the models burned up in just 30 minutes, but first, they were miniatures, and a miniature won't take as long to burn as a full-sized person. So the experiment would need to be repeated with a full-size model, perhaps a full-grown pig that weighs about the same as an adult human. And second, they soaked the pork in acetone to get this effect. But tissue that has been soaked in acetone doesn't correspond to tissue that has tiny amounts of acetone in it. Even under stress, our bodies don't produce a lot of acetone, which is why acetone poisoning is rare. I don't know that even in extreme cases, we can produce enough acetone to allow a rapid burn for the human body. So I'd want to see the experiment rerun with a full-size model that has only the amount of acetone in the tissues that the human body actually produces under stress. Even if acetone was a contributing factor, you still need an ignition source for the fire. So what could that be? 
Here's where we come to the most interesting question. The reason the phenomenon is called spontaneous human combustion is that it seems to happen spontaneously with no conventional fire source. But the question is, is that really the case? Do some or all of these instances really have a conventional source present to ignite the fire? What could such sources be? One proposal that's been made to explain some of the cases is lightning. but. An ordinary lightning strike on a house would damage more than just the person sitting in the chair, at least typically. So that doesn't necessarily seem to be a good explanation for most of these cases. That's led some to suggest ball lightning, which behaves much more unpredictably and is not well understood. I think it's possible that ball lightning or even regular lightning could be an explanation for some of these cases, but I don't think we need to get that exotic most of the time. Before 1880, when Thomas Edison started to popularize electric light, people didn't have it available to them. In fact, electric light remained unavailable to many people for more than half a century. By 1930, only 70% of the homes in America were electrified, and it took even longer for electricity to come to many rural communities. My grandparents, for example, growing up in East Texas, did not have electricity when they were young. So before electric light, people had to rely on fire at night. That could be fire in a fireplace, or it could be candles, or it could be oil lamps, or if you lived in a city, it could be gas lighting, like you read about in the Sherlock Holmes stories. But one way or another, people were constantly using and exposed to fire at night, and sometimes they had accidents. That could be responsible for many of the historic cases of combustion. And by the way, these cases did tend to occur at night when people were using fire for light. What about people committing suicide? Don't people sometimes commit suicide by self-immolation? Yes, and that could explain some of these cases, but I don't think very many of them. In Western countries, the number of people who commit suicide by self-immolation is around 1%. And the rate's higher in other parts of the world, but... It just doesn't happen that much in our culture, and we don't have reports that victims of the phenomenon were suicidal. So I think most cases caused by external flames would be accidental rather than deliberate. People don't tend to use fire as a source of light in their homes anymore. What about the cases that happened after people had electric light? Well, light isn't the only thing that people use fire for. They also use it for cooking, and they use it for smoking. And whether you're smoking a pipe, a cigar, or a cigarette, you need to light it somehow. So smoking is another possible source for these cases. In fact, these days in America, accidents with cigarettes are a leading cause of fire deaths, apparently resulting in four out of five fire deaths annually. And Mrs. Mary Reeser, whose story we told at the beginning of this episode, was a cigarette smoker. And it's been proposed that, in her case... It could be explained if she fell asleep while sitting in a chair smoking a cigarette. Though, as we'll see, there are arguments against that. The cigarette theory could also explain why at least the cases reported on AnomalyInfo.com seem to drop off after the 1980s, since fewer people have been cigarette smokers in recent years. Though, I think that sometimes people point too quickly to the falling asleep or dying while smoking theory. Sometimes I think it's more complicated than that. Can you give me an example? 
Yeah, I'd point to the case of Dr. John Irving Bentley, a retired physician living in Cowder's Point, Pennsylvania. He was born in 1874, so he was 92 years old when he died in 1966. He was found by a meter reader named Don Gosnell, and Gosnell is still alive. Here's how he described what happened. My name is Don Gosnell, and I was a meter reader. And uh, in the morning, I went to the house to read meters, and I went through the door and yelled my normal greeting as a gas man. The doctor wasn't there where I could see him, and the house was full of a a light blue smoke. And uh, when I got to the foot of the steps, there was a pile of ashes on the floor that had never been there before. And I looked up to see where they'd come from, and there was a hole burnt through the floor and little red embers all around it yet. So I went running up the stairs, and when I went in the bathroom, all there was was from the foot to the knee of one leg laying there next to the hole. I didn't know at first if it was a mannequin or a human, really. I got down close, then I got the picture. Now, Dr. Bentley was a pipe smoker, and it's been suggested that he fell asleep while smoking his pipe, and that's what caused his case. However, I think it's probably more complicated than that. Why do you say that? Because I'm a pipe smoker, and I have been since I was young, so I've had a lot of experience with pipe tobacco, and I can tell you that it does not burn the way cigarettes do. People can light a cigarette, and it will burn down to the stub or the filter. That doesn't happen with pipes. If you're smoking a pipe and you want to use a bowl full of tobacco, you will typically have to light the pipe multiple times. If you want to ensure a long burn, you have to use special techniques. In fact, there are even pipe smoking competitions where you're allowed just two matches, so you get to light the pipe twice, and the goal is to keep it burning for as long as possible. You know, and they don't have competitions for things that are easy to do. (laughs) So this reveals how this is actually difficult to do. So you really have to work at it if you want to just light a bowl of tobacco once or twice. And as any longtime pipe smoker can tell you, if there's an accident or a breeze and a bit of burning tobacco gets out of the bowl, it goes out almost immediately. That would happen even if you drop the pipe entirely. So I don't think a simple version of falling asleep while smoking would explain Dr. Bentley's case. What might have happened then? Well, notice that Dr. Bentley's remains were not found in a chair. They were found in his bathroom, where you have water sources like the bathtub, the toilet, and the sink. Only one of those, the toilet, is constantly filled with water. And it's reported that in Dr. Bentley's toilet, broken remains of a water pitcher was found. That suggests that after he caught fire, Dr. Bentley tried to make it to the bathroom. This would have been hard because he was 92 years old at the time and using an aluminum walker. He had a water pitcher, and rather than taking time to fill it from the sink or the bathtub faucet, he tried to scoop up water from the only currently filled water source, the toilet, but he dropped the pitcher and it broke. That would explain everything that happened after he caught fire, but how did the initial ignition take place if it's hard to catch clothing on fire with a little spilled pipe tobacco? He was wearing a bathrobe at the time, which I've heard was wool, and he would apparently keep kitchen matches in the pocket of his robe. So I think it's more likely that it was an accident involving the matches. 
Perhaps he struck one and then dropped it in the vicinity of the pocket, causing the other matches to catch fire. I can't rule out that it was an accident with the pipe, but an accident with the matches seems much more probable to me. In any event, I think there was a natural, non-exotic source of ignition in this case. What about other cases? Do people have evidence for more exotic causes of ignition? I can think of three pieces of evidence that people have cited that would point to something more exotic than an ordinary external flame being responsible. First, people who encounter the victims report that it looks like their bodies burned from the inside out, with their torsos and the upper parts of their bodies being completely consumed. But I don't really buy this explanation because their clothes are also typically gone. And with that being the case, there's no way to tell which burned first, their clothes or the insides of their bodies. There's, you know, no way to discern whether the fire started outside the bodies as long as both the torso and the clothing are gone. So you can't really make a judgment by looking at the extremities, which are typically either unclothed or less clothed. The second kind of evidence I've seen cited is it's reported that some of these cases took place in much less time than would be needed. I've seen reports that some of them happened in mere minutes where the candle or wick effect would take hours to produce the results seen. And the trouble is, most of the cases did apparently take hours to happen. I haven't been able to verify reports of ones taking place in really short periods of time. Consequently, those reports could be erroneous and much longer periods of time may have been involved. The third piece of evidence I've seen, it's reported that in Mary Reeser's case, her skull was actually shrunken to the size of a teacup. This is something that would not happen in a typical fire, and it requires another explanation. If there is a cause for these cases that is more exotic, that isn't an external flame coupled with a candle or wick effect, what might it be? It varies. On one extreme, there's a theory proposed by Larry Arnold in his 1995 book, Ablaze, The Mysterious Fires of Spontaneous Human Combustion. He suggests that the fires are caused by an undiscovered subatomic particle he calls a pyrotron. However, we've done a lot of research on subatomic particles, and so far we haven't discovered anything like the pyrotron. It's true that many physicists think that there are forms of matter we haven't discovered yet, like the proposed dark matter we discussed in episode 83, but the whole point of dark matter is that except for gravity, it doesn't interact with normal matter, and so it's highly unlikely to start fires. As a result, I don't think the subatomic theory is likely at all. What about things that happen above the subatomic level or on the atomic or chemical level? Here we get into territory that is much more plausible, at least compared to undiscovered subatomic physics that start macroscopic fires in human tissue. Dr. Lawrence Afrin studies mast cells, which are a kind of cell used in our allergic responses, and he developed a theory involving them to explain human combustion and how a body might start burning from the inside. Dr. Afrin relates the story of a 35-year-old patient of his who had mast cell disease and who would experience an unusual rise in body temperature when he engaged in physical activity. He writes, He had a couple of episodes where he just started feeling very, very hot. Both of these times were when he was undertaking some physical activity. One time was a basketball game and he had to sit down. 
He was a little foggy in the head, and a large crowd of people around him all asserted that smoke was emanating from all about his body. This wasn't vapor, this wasn't mist, it was smoke, as if from true combustion. In both episodes, the crowd around him took measures to cool him down. One time they put him in a pool, and another time they surrounded him with fans. They got him cooled down after about 30 to 60 minutes. He cooled down, stopped smoking, and the cognitive dysfunction abated. So Dr. Afrin started thinking about how mast cell disease might be responsible for this anomalous situation. The average obese adult has 70 billion adipose, or fat, cells. Adipose tissue is a known mast cell reservoir. There are about 1 to 2,000 mitochondria per adult animal cell, and it is the mitochondria that are the source of heat in your body. Now, we also know that norepinephrine is a known mast cell mediator. It is produced by the mast cell. In what is normally a very carefully regulated process, as you might imagine, norepinephrine affects a cell's mitochondrial UCP1 protein. This is a switch in the mitochondria that ordinarily channels energy released from fatty acid oxidation of the mitochondria into ATP, or energy, production. But in the presence of norepinephrine, UCP1 is switched to a different state, such that the energy being released by fatty acid oxidation is just released as heat. So is it possible that an unregulated flood of norepinephrine or some other mediator which serves to switch UCP1 on from a mast cell flare in the adipose tissue could drive UCP1-mediated heat release so much that the fat escalates to ignition temperature, which is less than you might think, a little bit below the boiling point of water? The average cell is capable of producing 5 nanowatts of heat under ordinary circumstances. So if I'm doing the math right, the human body can produce 250 watts of heat per second. Of course, when you escalate temperature of the body to that degree, you very quickly get brain shutdown, the patient dies, and there's no way the mast cells are continuing to release the norepinephrine. But by that point, it doesn't matter anymore. The fire is started, and it will continue until all the fuel, that is, all the fat, is consumed. This is all hypothetical. I have not a clue how spontaneous combustion actually happens because it's never been observed and never will be observed under controlled circumstances. However, I've become a big believer in Occam's razor, and if mast cell disease is causing all the rest of this patient's problems, it seems most likely it's causing his smoking, too. The only question becomes, how? So, although he doesn't know if this is the case, Dr. Afrin proposes that there might be a stress-related trigger in people with mast cell disease that could cause an uncontrolled release of heat in the body, resulting in spontaneous human combustion. Have there been other theories to explain how a body might start burning from the inside? Another theory is proposed by the British chemist John Emsley in his book The Thirteenth Element, which is about phosphorus, and that's a little weird because phosphorus is the 15th element on the periodic table rather than the 13th. He calls the book what he does because phosphorus was the 13th element to be isolated in its pure form, and it has an unlucky reputation. It's highly flammable and bursts into flame in an oxygen atmosphere and can cause significant damage. Despite how dangerous phosphorus can be in its pure state, it's actually an element that's essential for life. As a result, it's in our bodies and it gets there because we eat it in our diets. Recently, scientists have discovered that, although they're not sure how, the microbes in our guts convert some of it to a compound named diphosphane, which will ignite in air. 
Emsley proposes that, in some cases, a person's gut bacteria might make enough diphosphane and it might come into contact with the right gases, either in our guts or upon being expelled, to cause a spontaneous fire. So that's Emsley's explanation for spontaneous human combustion? Only on a maybe basis. He admits that the link is tenuous and this would be more likely to happen in a person's body if they were dead and decaying rather than still being alive at the time they went up. But he raises it as a possibility. You mentioned that there's a dispute about Mrs. Reeser's case and whether it could be the result of an ordinary fire caused by a cigarette. What does the dispute involve? Partly, it has to do with her skull, which reportedly had been shrunken to the size of a teacup. Garth Haslam reports, Heads don't shrink when exposed to heat. They expand. And in extreme temperatures, they explode. So Mary Reeser's anomalously shrunken skull has been pointed out for years as proof of the supernatural nature of the death that overcame Mrs. Reeser. Not surprisingly, believers in the non-supernatural nature of Reeser's death have a scientifically acceptable explanation for the shrunken skull. Simply put, it's not a skull. It's a knot of muscle from the back of Reeser's neck that has charred into a hard ball that was mistaken for a skull. So, here's the trick. Both theories have evidence for and against them. Evidence for the supernatural shrinking of the skull are the statements of coroner Ed Silk, who handled the object, and called it a shrunken skull. The evidence against the theory is that it presents what appears to be a scientific impossibility. Evidence for the mistaken knot of muscle theory is that it is scientifically plausible, and the evidence against this theory is that the idea is not actually based on direct evidence. It is an educated guess at what sort of remains could be found that might be mistaken for a skull. The skull and or knot of muscle, whichever it might have been, was likely buried along with Mrs. Reeser's foot. The object was never tested further, nor was it sent to the FBI to be examined. So the question of whether or not Mary Reeser's shrunken skull was actually found tends to be decided not by evidence, but by preference. Those who believe in supernatural human combustions see evidence for a shrunken skull. Those who believe in a rational scientific form of burning see evidence for a mistaken object. About the only thing the two groups agree on is that the strange fire deaths have happened and likely will continue to occur. How these deaths are viewed and treated by the public and news agencies will always depend largely on the current public idea of both the causes and meanings of these events. But to those who are left behind by a loved one who suffers this fate, the loss will always be painful and likely complicated by the reactions of the curious. And so we have reported evidence that points both ways. Until we get more evidence, there will still be an element of mystery around spontaneous human combustion, at least for people who are trying to follow the evidence rather than insisting that it must have a particular kind of explanation. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on human combustion? I think spontaneous human combustion is a very interesting phenomenon. I think that many reports of it are due to natural causes, such as an external flame coupled with the candle or wick effect. However, I can't eliminate the possibility that at least a few cases are caused by something with a more exotic source of ignition. I don't think that these are likely caused by subatomic phenomena, but it is possible that there are rare chemical reactions like the ones we've covered, or rare electrical ones like ball lightning, and it's even possible that something more exotic yet is happening. 
I also suspect there isn't a single cause for the phenomenon. It's quite possible we're dealing with a combination of causes that are responsible for the different cases. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer the listener on this topic? We'll have a link to Garth Haslam's ebook, Spontaneous Human Combustion, A Brief History, and I really want to recommend this one. When I first saw it on Amazon, I was skeptical. It's like a 99-cent ebook, and a lot of the little short ebooks on mysterious topics that you see are just somebody recycling Wikipedia in a new form, and they're not very good. Garth Haslam's ebook is excellent. It's a, it's a short read, but as you can hear from the way we ended this episode with him pointing out the evidence kind of points both way in some cases, and you kind of have to take your pick, which source of evidence do you believe? He's very balanced in a really concise way, very thorough in discussing this phenomenon. So high recommendations to his book. Also, we'll have a link to John Emsley's book, The 13th Element, about phosphorus. We'll have a link to Mary Reeser's case of spontaneous human combustion on anomalyinfo.com, as well as their list of different reported cases from all down the years. You can click on each one. They've got a page for it. A general article on the phenomenon a link to my talk on the problem of evil, also an article on pyrokinesis, that article from 1800 by Dr. Lair, where he talked about spontaneous human combustion and alcohol. Also, for the alcohol aficionados who wonder where I got the proof numbers we cited earlier, we'll have a link to that page for the alcohol levels of different beverage types. Ross Pomeroy's 2012 article, Dr. Brian Ford's article where he was proposing that it was mast cell disease that was causing this. Also, information on cremation, a video about Dr. J. Irving Bentley, which had that interview with the guy who found him, and also a transcript of a talk by Dr. Afrin. Actually, I guess it was Dr. Afrin who had the mast cell theory. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, we have an astronomy theme. Now, Dom, I'm old enough and grew up in an area where we didn't have cable at first. Yep. So we had the main broadcast channels, which like ran from two to 13. VHF, and, right? Yeah. And then yep. the UHF, ultra high frequency channels above that, which were always shaky and we didn't really have any nearby and <laughs> yeah. they were always really fuzzy. But in the area where I grew up and I'm betting in the area where you grew up, you may not remember it, but if you ever turned to channel 37, it was always blank, nothing but static. We had channel 38, but mm -hmm. not, not 37. Yeah. Well, there's a reason for that. And it's because in the early days when the channels were being divvied up, a bunch of radio astronomers said, hey, we just invented radio astronomy and we need Channel 37 to be clear so that we can look for aliens and other radio sources in the sky. Ah. And so they tried the FCC, which was new, tried some compromises, but eventually they said, OK, basically, you guys can have this channel. And so at least in the United States and actually around much of the world, the astronomical community prevailed and was able to keep Channel 37 clear so they could look for aliens and other radio sources in the sky. Oh. Another strange thing in the sky that people have seen is known as the false dawn. And this is something that you're out at night and it looks like the sun's coming up over the horizon. There's like a shaft of light coming up 
over the horizon, even though the rest of the sky is black and filled with stars. This is a phenomenon known among astronomers as the zodiacal light, because the light comes up in the plane of the zodiac, which is the zodiac is the band of stars around the Earth on the ecliptic, the plane of the solar system. And so astronomers have been wondering what causes the zodiacal light. Now, it can be seen from multiple places in the solar system, and apparently in the outer solar system, it's caused by a bunch of comets. But recent studies have indicated that there may be a different source, and likely is a different source, in the inner solar system for the zodiacal light or false dawn that we see here on Earth. That source is dust in the inner solar system that's being backlit by the sun, but where the dust comes from is the interesting part. Mars. Hmm. It looks like dust is getting up off the planet Mars through its very thin atmosphere due to its low gravity. And that dust from Mars is hanging around the inner solar system. And sometimes the sun will light it in such a way that it produces the zodiacal light or false dawn here on Earth. So we'll have a link to that. Wow. Awesome. Uh, uh, Channel 38 in uh, the Boston area, by the way, uh, that had the creature double feature on Saturday. So maybe that has an alien connection as well. (laughs) Could be. So I want to turn to the listener and say, what are your theories about spontaneous human combustion? You let us know online by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of Mysterious Feedback. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Our next episode is our 150th, so we'll be doing an update on the stories we've been covering on Mysterious World, and I'll be letting you know about what new developments have come to my attention. So get ready to revisit some topics including transhumanism, Bigfoot, the Great Pyramid, and a bunch of other stuff that we've talked about and find out what's new. Awesome. Folks, remember to like this episode on the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, retweet it on Twitter where you find it, and help share the show out to many folks out there. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest.